In this new series on the reinvention of the retail industry, presented by Brookfield Properties in partnership with the business of fashion and myself, Doug Stevens, we'll investigate the remarkable challenges and opportunities for retailers created by the increasing number of black swan events in an age of growing uncertainty. Investigating shifting consumer behaviors and innovative on and offline retail strategies, this series will conclude by positing what a reimagined retail system could look like and the values it will be built on. First up in our six-part series, we look at how the unprecedented events that took place in the first half of 2020, which have already transformed retail, are also in the process of transforming the psyche of the consumers who drive the industry. Marketing is many things. It's part design, part psychology, and part math. But above all, marketing is the art of persuasion. The ability to deliver a finely honed message to just the right consumer at just the right time to trigger a need or desire and, like a clarion call, draw consumers to your door. Under normal circumstances, this isn't easy. With the COVID-19 pandemic unrelenting in its impact, these are hardly normal circumstances. So what can psychology and history tell us about how the customer will react? It's no exaggeration to say that the COVID-19 pandemic may indeed be the most sustained and life-altering event most of us will ever experience. Add to this the levels of social unrest and conflict we've witnessed thus far in 2020, and it adds up to significant psychological trauma for most consumers. It all got me thinking, what is the consumer mindset during times of crisis? How do fear and anxiety influence our behavior? What sorts of marketing messages are consumers either receptive to or repelled by, and how should businesses respond? And it was all of these questions that led me to one man, Ernest Becker. Becker was a professor of anthropology at Canada's Simon Fraser University. It was during his tenure at Simon Fraser that Becker wrote his 1974 Pulitzer Prize-winning work, The Denial of Death, the central premise of which was that, unlike other animals, humans are unique in that our outsized brains evolved to a point where we became conscious of our own existence, but also of our own mortality. Moreover, we became smart enough to intuit death's unpredictability and permanence. Becker's underlying premise was that this unique evolutionary trait, the cognizance of death and our innate fear of it, drives much of our conscious and subconscious behavior. And what Becker hypothesized is that if that's all we thought about, that, you know, I'm going to die someday, I can walk outside and get hit by a comet or smoke by a virus, uh, you just wouldn't be able to stand up in the morning. You'd be a twitching blob of biological protoplasm, like cowering under your bed, groping for a large sedative. What we do as humans to manage this potentially overwhelming existential terror is to embrace culturally constructed beliefs. He called them cultural worldviews that we share with other people in our group that reduces death anxiety uh, by giving us a sense that life has meaning and, and that we have value and that we may even have some hope 
of immortality, maybe through the afterlives and heavens and souls that are promised by all of the world's great religions. That's Sheldon Solomon. He's a professor of psychology at Skidmore University in upstate New York and one of three world-renowned researchers who decades ago began exploring Becker's thesis about death and its impact on our behavior. What they found was that while Becker's theory made sense on paper, there was one big problem. No one knew if it was valid in the real world. What other psychologists and social scientists said is, you know, these are interesting ideas, but there's no evidence for them. How do we know uh, that uh, concerns about death have this potent an effect on human affairs? And that's where we come in as kind of egghead researchers. And so it was Solomon, and as he puts it, his fellow egghead researchers, that decided to put Becker's thinking to the test. We had a disarmingly simple idea almost 40 years ago. We just said, well, all right, let's see uh, what would happen if in an experimental setting uh, we reminded people that they're going to die. Maybe we can ask them to fill out a little questionnaire uh, about their thoughts and feelings about themselves dying. Maybe we could be more subtle and stop people outdoors, some of them in front of a funeral parlor and some of them on 100 meters to either side. The thought being that if you're stopped in front of a funeral parlor, then death might be on your mind. Other times we bring folks back in the lab and we flash the word death for 28 milliseconds while they're reading something else. It's so fast that you can't even see that you've been exposed to it. And what we have found is that when people are reminded of their mortality, again, whether they're conscious of it or not, it literally affects almost all aspects of human affairs. It was a breakthrough. Not only did Solomon and team confirm key aspects of Becker's theory, their work formed an important extension of it, a new thesis called terror management theory. Meaning that in order to manage our terror of death, humans construct elaborate cultural and spiritual worldviews to give their lives meaning and value, to insulate them against thoughts of death. And most of the time, such distractions and beliefs work. That is, until a crisis like a pandemic comes along. These often unpredictable and sudden reminders of death are what Solomon and team termed mortality salience. The salience of our mortality, argued Solomon, prompts almost immediate changes in behavior. So, for example, when mortality is salient, we like people who share our beliefs a whole lot more. And we hate and we will even hurt other people who have different beliefs. So Christians reminded of their mortality. They like fellow Christians a lot more thereafter, and they don't care for Jewish people. In Israel, Jewish people reminded of their mortality. They like Jewish people more, and they don't care uh, for Muslims or Christians. Germans reminded of their mortality. They sit closer to people that look German and, and further away from people that look Turkish. Uh, death reminders influence the way that people vote. It tends to nudge them to support more charismatic and populist kinds of leaders. This might explain much of the deep societal polarization we're witnessing today. 
As the world becomes a smaller and more interconnected place, threats from economic crises, terrorism, war, and pandemics are happening more frequently, raising our collective fear of death. It's this increasing fear that some world leaders have exploited to successfully sell their populist and often nationalist agendas. But while I was beginning to see how thoughts of our own mortality may change our social and political behavior, what I was really interested to understand was the influence fear of death might have on our consumer behavior. I wondered if there was any specific event that we could look to in order to understand how buying behavior can also be governed or modified by our fear of death. Turns out, there is. This, Justin, you are looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. After Center September right 11th of 2001, story. we were asked to write a book uh, about uh, terrorism. And in that book, we argued that the events of September 11th we're like a giant mortality salience induction. And so we're like, wow, what we're seeing in the lab, we expect to see that in the so-called real world. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. In the immediate aftermath of September 11th, uh, there was an outburst of hate crimes and anti-Islamic sentiment. We did studies that showed that Americans' support for President Bush, who had declared at the time that he was divinely ordained to rid the world of evil, that death reminders increased support for the president. Uh, death reminders increased a whole lot of uh, conspicuous consumption, uh, let's say. Uh, this was back in the days of blockbuster videos. Their business was uh, substantially magnified, gambling way up. Uh, TV watching, alcohol consumption, rates of different psychological disorders uh, way up. When people are reminded that they're going to die, they value money more. They are more interested in certain kinds of luxury items. They, uh, even if you ask people who are reminded of their mortality just to draw a picture of money, they, they draw the money bigger as if money looms larger on your mind when death is there. Uh, now we fast forward to the pandemic and our view, and this is probably common sense masquerading as psychological insight, is that this is even more of a pervasive reminder of death. The virus is literally everywhere and we predict, therefore, and the evidence to date is consistent with the view that we should expect the same kinds of effects um, in the world around us that we've obtained in the lab. But as Professor Solomon was explaining all this, something didn't sit right. After all, shouldn't we be less consumed with money when death is looming? Shouldn't material possessions seem more frivolous in such grave circumstances? Money is has always been a, a complex entity. You know, in classical economics, it's just seen as a neutral symbol that enables us to exchange goods and services in a more efficient and effective fashion. But money, you know, originated in religious settings. It has always been an ancient symbol of immortality. 
when folks in the U.S. doubt that, I tell them to look at the back of a $1 bill where there says, in God we trust, and then on the left side of the back of an American dollar is a pyramid, and on the top of the pyramid there's a little floating eyeball, and that's an ancient Egyptian symbol of immortality. And so Ernest Becker, in a book called Escape from Evil, writes a chapter about money uh, where he's not being cynical, where he just said, look, though, for a lot of people, God is dead, but money has become uh, the new God. And so for some people, the acquisition of money and stuff is essentially a death-denying fetish. Items like toilet roll, hand sanitizer, and pasta are now increasingly hard to come by as coronavirus-linked panic buying continues. In our work, when death is in the ethereal mist, uh, and one set of reactions just has to do with, you know, literally feeling safe. And it was striking, but not surprising early on when, like you say, people were renting forklifts to go get pallets of toilet paper and hand sanitizers and trying to find masks and, and things like that. It began to make sense to me. The more money we have, the more resources we feel we can muster to fend off the Grim Reaper. As Solomon pointed out, much of the panic buying, hoarding, and antisocial behavior we saw in the early phase of the COVID-19 crisis could indeed be explained by mortality salience. And money is a proxy for safety, security, and ultimately a secular means of immortality. And that's because we're fundamentally terrified of dying. But how, I wondered, did mortality salience explain the other things people seem to be clamoring for? Bread makers? Puzzles and board games? How were these things a defense against mortality? Some businesses are like, all right, we make masks, we make hand sanitizers. For those folks, the appeal is easy. We have a product that will enhance your safety. There are other folks who are in the uh, business of offering what might be considered to be productive forms of distraction. You know, it's, and I don't mean that in, in any pejorative sense. Uh, the gardening stores in our area, they, they can't, they're running out of plants. The bicycle shops in our town, they're running out of bicycles. People are all of a sudden playing musical instruments. So I think there's an incredible range of retail opportunities uh, for folks who have products that can engage people in ways that are, are much more than just mindless distractions that reduce us to culturally constructed meat puppets. Now, even there, it's not my place to judge. And so the folks that, you know, that make TV shows and Netflix and the people that produce alcohol and so on, like anything, they're also in the distraction business. And um, like anything, in moderation, I think those products uh, can be useful. And there's certainly ample signs that uh, those kinds of businesses uh, are thriving. Now a word from our sponsor, Brookfield Properties' Meredith Darnall. 
Senior Vice President of Business Intelligence and Strategy, who shares retail insights from the real estate perspective. High-quality retail, first of all, it's distinct in that it's typically located near the most engaged retail consumers. Because of the proximity to these core consumers, these centers are also able to attract the most compelling retailer brands and services, creating a one-stop shopping destination for the consumer. As we're able to really assemble these popular brands and the brands that are most relevant to the consumer, you're creating a successful platform for retailers to really optimize top-line growth. So in times of crisis, we not only buy things we think can offer safety against the threat, but we also buy or participate in things as a means of distracting ourselves from it. This intense need for distraction explains the curious desire on the part of sports fans to see their teams resume play, or for spring-breaking students to crowd beaches. Doing so offers a distraction from the salience of mortality. But Solomon is also quick to point out that mortality salience also offers insight into another key aspect of our behavior. Then there's another kind of reaction to death reminders, and these are the ones where you try to um, bolster your confidence in your culture. Uh, you want to try and affirm your value or your self-esteem, and it's in the context of our relationships with other human beings that we are able, hopefully, most of us to secure enough of a sense that life has meaning and we have value and purpose. And this is what gives us the fortitude not only to function, but to thrive. This intrinsic human need for self-esteem and self-worth explain phenomena like the lipstick effect a proven psychological effect where simply by applying cosmetics, an individual feels enhanced levels of self-esteem, confidence, and according to Harvard University, even improved cognitive ability. It made sense that during crises, we'd be receptive to marketing messages that played to our sense of self-worth, belonging, and esteem. That said, mortality salience theory also points out that the sources of self-esteem can vary dramatically across society. For one person, it might be a haircut or a new pair of shoes. For another, driving too fast. It all depends on the unique nature of the worldview you begin with, and the sorts of things, good or bad, that feed your sense of self-worth. But that leads to another question. Is our urge to spend in times of crisis always about the acquisition of things? Or do we also seek moments, memories, even personal transformations? So there's a big body of research, for example, in social psychology that suggests that people are much happier when they spend money on experiences than uh, just stuff that they can stick on a counter and never look at. Uh, and uh, folks may realize that they want to devote resources uh, to activities that enable them to strengthen their relationships with their friends and family. So one possibility is that w folks respond to the virus in a very unreflective, defensive way. And as the philosopher Kierkegaard put it, they just tranquilize themselves with the trivial. They, they're just literally, I need more money. I need more stuff. 
Uh, I need more television, Netflix, alcohol, Twitter. But that's not the only way that it could go. Other folks who can step back figuratively and think about the implications of our finitude a little bit more deeply and a little bit more consciously, it may have quite a different effect along the lines of what you proposed, and that is a radical reassessment of what's meaningful, uh, what's important, uh, and, and that in turn may profoundly alter what people value and what they do with their resources. And the argument is that all of us uh, have some designs on an afterlife in some sense of the word. You know, not everyone's envisioning themselves in heaven, but I think most of us are at least somewhat hopeful that uh, we will leave something behind of note. Uh, you know, we're not all going to be Jesus or Gandhi or Steve Jobs, but it doesn't mean that we can't do something uh, that might be consequential and significant just to the folks around us. It's this desire for legacy, something lasting to leave behind, that drives some, after brushes with mortality, toward bucket list experiences with family, major purchases and investments, religion, and even heroic levels of public service or philanthropy, anything that serves as an afterlife, be it religious or secular in nature. So, what does a PhD psychologist foresee in terms of how consumers either will or will not pull us out of economic post-pandemic purgatory? After all, the pandemic of 1918 was a precursor to another momentous period in time. I think the most likely outcome for a large chunk of humanity is uh, our 21st century version of the Roaring Twenties. Could it happen again? Could the devastation of the COVID-19 pandemic lead to a period of great spending, great innovation and prosperity? Could we see a roaring 2020s? Leading to our 21st century version of the Great Depression and World War III. So that's not a, a, a great outcome, but it would be an understandable one. It'd be this century's Great Gatsby and uh just like, uh, you know, wow, carpe diem, let's live for today because we don't know when what's going to be tomorrow. I think there might be another chunk of humanity that wavers in apprehension and ambiguity. And these are folks that quite understandably are going to be, I'm, I'm just going to sit in my house and I'm not going to spend a dollar more than I need to. Uh, because I got to hunker down. I don't know when the next bad thing is mm. going to happen. And now my guess is that's bad for business. Um, and by the way, so is war and economic uh, collapse and environmental catastrophe. Um, so th that's another possibility. Um, uh, the philosopher Nietzsche, who was a bit of a lunatic, but he just said, look, Sometimes crisis is good because it makes you step back and, in his language, to reevaluate all values. What is what is meaningful to me? Um, not what my culture taught me is meaningful. What is really meaningful to me? Uh, what 
do I value? Uh, what kind of world do I want to live in? And how's that going to be reflected in the kinds of businesses that I want to own and run and the kind of consumer that I would like to be or, or become? We're always going to be anxious about death, and we're always going to yearn for meaning and value and connection uh, with our fellow humans. Uh, but I can see ways of accomplishing that uh, that make life better for everybody. And my sincere hope is that that's where we will head. And how does Solomon view the role of the retail industry in making life better for everybody? My view is that it's folks in the business sector, in the retail sector, because we are in developed uh, countries. Uh, we're mostly consumers. Uh, and I think it's the folks that are, are in the retail industry that, by virtue of the decisions that they make, consciously and not, that they're in a real powerful position uh, to nudge humanity in a more benevolent direction. And I, I just don't see it as a mutually contradictory to claim on the one hand uh, that there can be great economic prosperity, while on the other hand, uh, that that can be done in a way that enriches our lives without destroying the planet. That, that's just my hope for the future. As I thank Professor Solomon for his time, I couldn't help reflecting on our eternal plight as human beings. That on the one hand, we see ourselves as immortal and godlike. But in reality, as we are reminded of during times like these, we are no less expendable than houseflies, or any more valuable than trees. The result is both an intense fear of death and the retreat into elaborate cultural belief systems and social constructs that insulate and distract us from death's cold embrace. Pandemics, terrorist attacks, and financial crises stick a pin in our shiny worldviews, reminding us of our inevitable mortality. Out of pure survival instinct, we become even more vigilant about our cultural worldview and returning to the people, places, and things it includes. We hoard resources that we believe will ensure survival, we work to rebuild our self-esteem, value, and purpose within that worldview. And finally, we strive to leave something behind, a legacy that might include wealth and possessions, achievements, or simple memories in the hearts and minds of loved ones. For marketers seeking answers in a pandemic, the insight is this. If you really want to understand the life of your customer, you'd be wise to begin by understanding their death. If you've enjoyed this episode of Retail Reborn, created by the Business of Fashion and presented by Brookfield Properties, subscribe to the BOF podcast to receive all future episodes in our six-part series. Until next time, I'm Doug Stevens. Doug Stevens.